music i just get so hyped every time i hear it uh, good morning ladies and gentlemen and thank you for tuning in you are listening to fiscal your weekly consistency check on america's political and legal file systems i'm your host t greg Doucette, here in studio with mike the sound guy and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown durham north carolina I, uh, I don't know, I just get really pumped up when I listen to the intro music as we're getting ready to record. Uh, got a lot to talk about this week, but I feel like it's going to be a shorter episode. We'll see. What? Well, no, I mean, I, so Mike asked why I feel that way. I, the outline is 11 pages, which is long, but it just, it, it didn't take as long putting it together, which I think means that there's going to be fewer stories. I don't keep track of the stories until after we've uploaded everything, but you know, I just we'll see what happens. So, before we get into the stuff that we got to talk about, I do want to give thanks to a pair of sponsors who are sponsoring this week's podcast. Uh, one of them is Polly Brody of Connecticut, who so we've mentioned before, we've got this Patreon account that we use to kind of cover the cost of the program. We've had people that are very kind to contribute to that. And you can donate through that. But uh, Polly not only sent us a donation, she actually included a very nice card. So it's like I don't get fan mail often. So getting fan mail was cool. And then getting fan mail with money in it is even better, of course. Um, so if you get the urge and you want to send us fan mail, you are more than welcome to do so. Uh, our address, our physical address, is 311 East Main Street, Durham, North Carolina, 27701. So if you get the urge, if you want to send me hate mail, you can do that too. Uh, but it was it was cool. I mean, I don't get cards that often. So, Polly, thank you very much for your support. And this episode is also sponsored by a Law 140 lover, David Ross of Tennessee. So David and I go way back. He was a, a student at NC State along with me. He went into the Navy. I went to law school. And now he's actually making far more money than I am doing, like, nuclear engineering or something super impressive. Uh, so his suggested topic is on contracts. So we normally talk about criminal law and First Amendment stuff, but as part of my law practice, I actually do a lot of business litigation as well. So I'm going to give you all an overview, a very high-level overview of the law of contracts, because contracts can cover a bazillion podcasts. So at the very least, we're going to start with kind of the big picture stuff. So that will be in the back third of the episode. Uh, I've put the card a bit in front of the horse. Make sure you join the conversation online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can tweet us using the hashtag Fisk. That is hashtag F-S-C-K. The website is Fiskamall.com, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you, too, would like to be one of our sponsors, you can join the Patreon community at Patreon.com slash Fisk. We've got a little bit of stuff there for you. We've got some bonus Law 140s if you want to learn about uh, we talked a bit about the Mueller indictments. We've talked about burdens of proof and some other things. Uh, so if you're interested in that type of stuff, check out the Patreon community. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the meat and potatoes of the podcast. Uh, it's actually been a bit of a slow week political news-wise, thankfully. Uh, our beloved Papaya POTUS, the Moscow Muppet himself, Donald Trump, is still overseas. Uh, he's still an idiot, of course. Uh, he somehow managed to tweet just the other day, uh, and this is an exact quote from his Twitter. It says, quote, Why would Kim Jong-un insult me by calling me old when I would never call him short and fat? 
oh, well, I try so hard to be his friend. Maybe someday that will happen. It's like a you got a high school kid serving in the White House. It's it's insane. He did meet with his boss. Uh, he did meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin. So we'll see how that goes. And he tweeted out uh, some other stuff confirming that the Russians didn't hack the 2016 elections, didn't try to interfere at all, even though all 17 domestic intelligence agencies that cover that sort of thing say otherwise. But that's your president. The big news politically, though, is Roy Moore down in Alabama. Good God almighty. So y'all may remember Judge Moore, Justice Moore, whatever you want to call him. So this is a guy who served twice on the Alabama Supreme Court. The first time he was kicked out of office because he custom-ordered massive granite tablets uh, with engravings of the Ten Commandments. He was ordered by a federal court to remove them and refuse. So he got removed from office that time for defying a court order. Then got reelected to the Supreme Court and got removed a second time because when the U.S. Supreme Court issued their ruling affirming same-sex marriage, holding that that was allowed nationwide, uh, Moore said that they weren't going to follow it in Alabama. So he got removed for that as well. Well, the big story came this week uh, out of the Washington Post, and it's, it's very heavily sourced. So it's one thing to print a story that doesn't have much, but Washington Post went deep on this. Uh, come to find out that Judge Moore likes to prey on teenage girls when he was a district attorney in his 30s. Uh, there are four separate accusers, there are more than 30 witnesses, saying that he dated girls who were 18 and 17 and 16, and in at least one case, uh, sexually assaulted a 14-year-old who he met outside of a child custody hearing when he was a DA and the kid's mother was going in for the custody hearing. Creepy as fuck. Well, then when this guy released... Of course, there's the initial scramble of I don't want to comment and initial denials and whatever else. Well, now that people are talking about it, other folks are coming forward, including his former colleagues, to say, oh, yeah, he did this all the time. Like, it was not a big deal. So there is a, uh, a quote from CNN from a district attorney, Teresa Jones, who used to work with Moore in the DA's office. And she says, quote, it was common knowledge that Roy dated high school girls Everyone we knew thought it was weird. We wondered why someone his age would hang out at high school football games in the mall. Ugh. Like, so it's, it's not only disgusting enough that this guy is in his 30s trying to groom kids, but on top of that, he was a district attorney. He's a position of power. He basically is part of the law enforcement apparatus of Alabama preying on kids. And it's something where, you know... The GOP has actually stood behind him and defended him. It's the point where, the, you know, the Republican Party, the GOP, the acronym used to be Grand Old Party. Now it's really gross old pedophiles. It's disgusting. And give, give Roy Moore credit, okay? So Roy Moore, give him credit for thinking like a lawyer because when he opened up his Bible and saw those Ten Commandments and saw that it said, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, Roy said, you know what? I got you. That's fine. I'll covet his daughter instead. You know Judge Roy Moore's favorite part about being a judge? Recess. You know the sentence he gave most often? This is just our little secret, okay? And then he went on Hannity's radio show to defend himself, and he said, I don't remember dating any girl without the permission of her mother. Well, no shit, you don't have a lot of choice when they're too young to drive. Let me stop. I shouldn't be cracking jokes. This is a serious, uh, a serious issue. But the defense 
of Moore from all corners of the GOP just highlights the moral bankruptcy of the party. So Sean Hannity worked at length to try and highlight that the relationships were consensual, even though a 14-year-old can't consent, period. I mean, there's, there's actual statutory law in Alabama that says the age of consent is 16. And even if a 14-year-old could consent, it's still fucking creepy. And then, um, what's the guy's name? Horowitz. You know, this guy's a supposed intellectual as part of the, the conservative pantheon. And he tweeted out, and this is an exact quote, it says, quote, In my view, Moore is guilty as accused, but it happened 30 years ago, and he can't be removed from the ballot, and electing a Dem strengthens a party that defends these criminals, Obama, the Clintons, Holder, Lynch, Abbott, and Cheryl Mills, etc., and their crimes are far, far worse. Uh, okay, I... I I don't even know where to touch that. I mean, I don't even want to touch that. You know what I mean? This notion that we need to defend pedophilia or or whatever you call it. I guess pedophilia technically is for prepubescent kids. But I mean, preying on young teens, whatever term you want to give that, is disgusting. And then there's a guy, uh, Daniel Dale. He's a reporter with the Toronto Star. He called every single GOP official in Alabama to get their thoughts. And the Geneva County chairman, Riley Seibenhenner, says he doesn't believe the allegations are true, but if they were true, he wouldn't support more. But at the same time, quote, it's not forcible rape. I know that 14-year-olds don't make good decisions. It's not the 14-year-old's fucking job to not get preyed upon by a 32-year-old man who's a DA. All right, we don't put the onus on kids to not get attacked by predator adults. It, you guys are just so fucking, ah. I'm glad I left. You know, for a long time, I felt betrayed by the, the turn that the GOP took after spending so many years in the Republican Party. I mean, I've said before, I was a Republican since before I could vote. I helped my girlfriend start the high school Republican club back when I was 16 years old. You know, and after 20 years in the party... I felt betrayed, but now watching these clown show fucks go out of their way to defend a sexual predator just so that they can avoid having a Democrat win a Senate seat, it's grotesque. It's totally fucking grotesque, and this is what Trumpism has wrought on the Republican Party. So that's uh, that's it for the, the political news. Don't have much by way of court news either, but we do have some interesting general research stuff. Uh, so there's a new report out mentioned by CBS where the Homeland Security folks did an undercover investigation of TSA. That's the Transportation Safety Administration, uh, the new entity we created after 9-11 to keep us safe as we're flying through our airports and such. Uh, Found out that when you're going through those little scanners and checkpoints, they miss weapons more than 70% of the time, which, believe it or not, is an improvement because the last time they did a spot check, they missed it more than 94% of the time. But stop and think. We're now 16 years after 9-11, we have created this new Department of Homeland Security. We have created TSA. We have spent millions upon millions upon millions of taxpayer dollars hiring personnel, retrofitting airports to include these little, not just the x-ray scanners, but the CT body scan things. We've dealt with scandal after scandal, where, for example, they were sharing nude photos. Y'all might remember that back in uh, 0203. 
There was a separate time a few years back where you could hide whatever you wanted on the edge of your clothing because of the way the uh, software was dealing with the scanners. As long as you had a lead-lined pocket on the edge, it wouldn't look like it was part of you. It would look like it was part of the background. You know, we've gone through all of this. The time lost going through a TSA checkpoint. I tell you, what, let me pause. So I, I didn't talk much about TSA because I don't fly that often. But last month I went on vacation, and on the way back, almost missed my flight because the TSA folks checked every single piece of candy of the person that was in front of us, and then checked all of our food that we had brought for the trip. Because I don't even know why. I mean, everything was individually sealed separately in the little pouches. We followed the directions to try and get through quickly. You know, we spent at least an hour and a half in the TSA line for absolutely fucking nothing. And then find out that they're missing these weapons 70% of the time. It's a huge expense of time and money to accomplish zero actual security. It's security theater and nothing else. It's fucking embarrassing. Uh, out of the New York Times, there is a study by NYU professor Patrick Sharkey where they look at uh, the crime drop. So we had really high crime rates back in the 1970s and 80s. They've been dropping for the past 30 years. No one really knows why. Uh, well, what they've found is that for every 10 nonprofit organizations that focus on criminal justice and the youth, for every 10 nonprofit organizations per 100,000 residents, there's actually a very strong correlation of a 9% drop in murder, 6% drop in violent crime, and a 4% drop in property crime by having those organizations involved in the community. And why does that matter? Well, the Brennan Center, completely separate organization, had actually done a prior study showing that extra policing and higher incarceration has a 0% impact on crime. So you lock more people up, it doesn't actually affect the crime rate. So this idea that nonprofits are helping reduce crime is a big deal for a lot of reasons. One, we should be encouraging them to happen. Uh, but on top of it, this kind of feeds into this conservative mantra of local control and citizens kind of acting outside the aegis of government to get stuff done. It's a very conservative thing to set up a private charity to help accomplish something, at least officially. I mean, in terms of the rhetoric, you would think that would be a conservative thing. So we'll see if anyone in the Republican Party grasps onto this instead of continuing the tough-on-crime rhetoric that doesn't actually work. Uh, also out of the Times, there is a interesting story relating to DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Uh, this is the Obama executive order that basically said if you were a kid brought here against your will, uh, back when you were young, but you haven't committed any crimes or whatever else, we'll let you stay in the country, get a work permit, and so on, without you getting deported, because you're a low priority when we've got actual criminals to deport. Well, a renewal deadline was coming up for the initial wave of folks who applied to have their ability to stay renewed. And the Times did a survey of lawyers in New York, Chicago, and other major cities. And what they found uh, was that the Postal Service was deliberately misrouting DACA renewals so that they wouldn't get to Customs and Immigration Services in time. Uh, here's from the story, quote, On Thursday, in a rare admission from a federal agency, the U.S. Postal Service took the blame. David A. Partenheimer, a spokesman for the post office, said there had been an unintentional temporary mail processing delay in the Chicago area. But the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Agency said nothing more could be done. The decisions were final. 
According to USCIS regulations, a request is considered received by USCIS as of the actual date of receipt at the location for filing such request, Steve Blando, a spokesman for the agency, wrote in a statement. He added, USCIS is not responsible for the mail service an individual chooses or for delays on the part of mail service providers. Holy shit. So we we encourage people to use government services. We especially encourage them to use the Postal Service because the Postal Service is losing money. Why would you send a letter when you can send an email? And now when the Postal Service fucks up, what they say is, well, you know, it was your choice to use the government service we're trying to encourage you to use, which just means more people doing immigration stuff are going to start using FedEx or UPS, and the Postal Service is going to lose even more money because of government incompetence. So that is uh, in the New York Times. We'll have all these links in the show notes. Uh, congratulations are in order to Radley Balco of the Washington Post. He is the 2017 recipient of the Reason Foundation's Bastiat Prize after Frederick Bastiat. The prize honors writing that, quote, best demonstrates the importance of freedom with originality, wit, and eloquence. So we've quoted Balco many times. I've mentioned in the last podcast that he's got a regular column called The Watch. Never met the guy, never talked to the guy, but I love his work. I read him, quote him liberally. Uh, He's the guy who wrote Rise of the Warrior Cop, talking about a lot of our policing problems. He's been writing about it for years, Uh, so it's a big win for him. Congratulations to Radley. Uh, Stars and Stripes on their Stripes.com website has a news story about the Sutherland Springs shooting. So let me pause. it's, It's crazy to me that so much happens that I actually forgot that the Sutherland Springs, Texas shooting was just last Monday. So the day the new podcast came out, it was either last Monday or Sunday, I'm not sure which. We'd already cut the podcast, the new one was about to go out, and then that all happened. So by the time we got to prepping the outline, so much other stuff had happened in between, I had forgotten it's only been a week since this thing happened. Well, as part of the investigation into that story, they found out that this guy had committed multiple crimes, should have been prevented from buying a gun as part of our database system that we use. Uh, also escaped a mental institution and a bunch of other shit. We found out the Air Force never actually put his conviction into the database, so the background check process wouldn't have worked. Well, it starts in the stripes. They've got data from past Pentagon reports that shows that this is normal. So this is an exact quote from the story. It says, quote, fingerprint cards were not submitted to the FBI criminal history files in more than 80% of cases in the Army and Navy and 38% in the Air Force. Failure to report the outcome of criminal cases was 79% in the Army and 50% in the Air Force, the report said. In the Navy, it was 94%. This is the problem that we always have, and we don't want to talk about the fundamentals of how government operates. We talk a lot about kind of the philosophical things about what a government should do. We talk about specific people and how they fuck up, but we don't talk about the core mechanics of how the government works. And the fact is government data keeping is trash. It is total trash. Most federal data systems are trash. Nearly all state systems are trash. And the vast majority of county, city, municipal systems are trash. And that's because you have fallible human beings collecting up enormous swaths of data that then have to get put into these systems by other fallible human beings. 
You think for a minute, use the E-Verify system as an example. So this is an automated system that supposedly checks whether or not you are a United States citizen or lawful permanent resident, enables you to be able to get a job. If there's a 99% accuracy rate in E-Verify, meaning only 1% of the entries are screwed up, you've been flagged as being ineligible to work, even though you're a United States citizen, assume for the sake of argument that only 1% is the error rate you still have literal millions of errors because you have over 300 million people in the country. So a 99% accuracy rate still leaves you with all of those errors. And then you face the reality that the accuracy rate is actually a lot less. And it's true across multiple systems. You know, the most effective systems that we have, the ones with the least amount of errors, are the ones that involve the government making money. I always wonder how it is that North Carolina's courts are able to function when so many things are based on paper files. And the reason why is that it's all about collecting money. So we've actually got multiple checks in place to try and keep that stuff working right. And even then, in my five years as being an attorney handling probably five, six hundred cases at this point, I've still seen errors all the time. So it's crazy to me that people are willing to put their faith in the government and the things that the government does when we don't even get basic shit right. You know, you could hire a college senior in computer science and have them architect a better data system from scratch than what we've got going on now. And we've covered some of the stuff before. We mentioned New York has a uh, asset forfeiture database that they can't get access to because it's still written in COBOL or Fortran or basic or some shit. You know, government fucks up pretty much everything and it fucks up few things more thoroughly than data entry and data keeping. So just kind of bear that in mind. So in state by state news out of Alabama in Castleberry, uh, Trey Crozier improperly backed out of his driveway back in 2016. Uh, His car was pulled over immediately for improperly backing out of the driveway Uh, The police took all of his cash off of him, which they found a total of $1,750, $250 in his wallet, and $1,500 in the car. Uh, The car was towed. He had to pay $500 to get it out. Was never charged with any crime. Didn't get charged with a traffic offense. Didn't get charged with anything else that would justify them keeping the money. But they kept the money anyway. So now that's the subject of a lawsuit. But the fascinating part about this story is the response from the mayor about how it all went down. So they interviewed the mayor, a guy named J.B. Jackson. And this is what he said. Uh, We didn't have much. When he says we didn't have much, he's referring to money. We didn't have much. So Police Chief Hawsey came to me and said, there's a lot of crime in this town and a lot of drugs coming through this town. So he said, why don't we set up a court system to get some money coming in? Notice, no reference to stopping the crime or the drugs. He said, let's set up a court system to get some money coming in. And the mayor continued... We hired our own DA and our own judge. The revenue started to grow, and we built out the police department. The war on drugs is just a way of trying to raise revenue for the government. It's a way of running the government without raising taxes so politicians can get reelected. Anyone who tells you otherwise is lying to you, and point to Castleberry, Alabama as an example. Uh, Out of California, the big story later in the week, we have both the first and third rules of Fisk in one story. So first rule of Fisk for our new listeners, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And the third rule of Fisk is that there are no new stories. There are only new names and new jurisdictions. 52-year-old Ronald Shields 
was pulled over for a traffic violation. He's black, you'll be surprised to know. And he gets taken out of the car and is being searched by Officer Samuel Lee. So this story came about because Lee is in court testifying that in addition to the traffic violation, they found cocaine in the front left shirt pocket of Shields' shirt because he's being charged with a felony cocaine offense. Well, it turns out that body camera footage got released. And if you look at the body cam from a different officer providing a different angle of what took place in Officer Gaxiola, they don't have a first name because this officer didn't testify. And spoiler alert, he's not going to testify because... Gaxiola actually picked up a baggie of cocaine and placed it into Shields' wallet. He was planting the drugs, and he got caught on camera. Now, you might be wondering, why would any officer be stupid enough to plant evidence while his body cam is running? And the answer is because his body cam wasn't running. He got caught by that 30-second buffer. So what happens is these cameras, we've talked about them before, they record continuously, but they keep overriding the same data. It's like the flash memory that you have in your computer, your RAM, where it's not permanent. It records over itself until you press the on button, and then it records to a different piece of solid-state drive where it's got both the ongoing recording plus 30 seconds prior to the button press to try and make sure that there's no tampering. Well, Gaxiola is planning the drugs during that 30-second buffer window when he didn't realize that his camera was on. So this is kind of a it, – it's not uncommon – to have dirty cops that district attorneys know about, and they'll try and prosecute cases and get around dirty cops testifying by having supposed good cops offer the testimony. And that's essentially what happened here. Officer Lee is the good cop testifying about what happened, no reference to the fact that Gaxiola planted the cocaine in Shields' wallet. Uh, so that's in L.A. Uh, the O.C. Register, that's Orange County for non-California people, uh, did an analysis of crime statistics and showed that the court reform efforts that the California folks have been implementing the past six, seven years, what they call in the article, quote, realignment, not sure what they're realigning, but they've done several things to try and reform their courts and their incarceration rates. Uh, what they found is that there's no evidence that letting more people out of jail, reducing incarceration, getting these folks back out into the community, uh, no evidence that this increases crime, which is what people clutch their pearls about. From the uh, story, says, quote, efforts to establish actual connections between California's criminal justice reforms and crime increases have turned up very little. For example, research published in the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science found no connection between AB 109, also known as realignment, and increases in violent crimes. Adding further context is a report released Monday from the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice, which assessed crime trends in 511 cities and local areas areas, accounting for over 99% of the state's population. The report notes that from 2010 through 2016, 210 cities and local areas across California experienced rising crime rates, averaging 12.3%, while 301 experienced crime drops, averaging 16.5%. And I don't want you to focus too heavily on the percents there, because you got to keep in mind, as crime has fallen from the 80s, we're now like all-time historic lows. There's never been less crime in the country going back to like the 50s and 60s. Small increases in quantity create very large percent increases. You know, so if you have a dollar 
and I give you a dollar, you now have $2. That's a 100% increase. It's a very huge percentage, even though you only have another buck. Now you've got $2. Let's say I give you another dollar. You've increased by the same dollar amount, but now that's only a 50% increase because you've gone from $2 to $3. So you've increased by 50%. So what you'll see happen a lot of times is certain politicians, Jeff Sessions, will focus on the percent increases in crime, even though the actual increase is very small in terms of actual things. So, for example, the homicide rate in the country is going to go up dramatically next year because the Las Vegas shooting and the Sutherland Springs shooting have provided raw numbers of people killed that are going to dramatically increase the total percentage of people killed because the murder rate has fallen so far. So you just got to kind of be aware of that stuff as that is all going on. So long story short, decriminalization works. It gets people back into the communities, able to become productive citizens again without leading to an increase in crime. Uh, in the District of Columbia, the Department of Justice has dropped the case against Desiree Farouz. She is the lady who laughed at Jeff Sessions when someone commented about how his uh, his reputation for serving everyone equally was without question or some shit like that. So she chuckled, basically. Uh, the congressional police arrested her. She was tried and convicted. The Circuit Court of Appeals for D.C. vacated the conviction, so she was released. Well, DOJ was upset that the circuit court had pointed out that her arrest was unconstitutional, which we told y'all that was going to happen. Said they were going to try her again. Well, her trial was set to start this week, and the DOJ changed its mind. They decided they're not going to prosecute because they were going to lose again. Out of Florida, down in Miami. We mentioned, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, you had a bunch of white firefighters who were harassing one of their black colleagues. They put a noose on his desk. They took all of his family photos out of the uh, frames and drew dicks on them and everything else. Well, they've been fired, and their pictures are being used by the media, which is a surprise. Uh, well, the Miami Fire Department and the Miami attorney have been sending cease and desist letters trying to stop the media from using their pictures. Now, you get arrested. You're not even convicted. You get arrested. Your mugshot's going to be on everything. But an actual firefighter gets fired for this type of stuff, and the government loses its mind. Uh, up in Georgia, in Conyers, Paul Hagen, who is a white teacher, teaches physics, uh, basically threatened to kill a student for laughing in class. Mike, were you able to clean up the audio on that one? Okay, we're going to try and put in the audio file so you can listen to it directly. It's from a student's cell phone that got uploaded to Snapchat, so the audio kind of sucks, but Mike thinks he's got it cleaned up enough that you can make out what he's saying. Hang on a sec. I'm just serious, dude. You screw with me, you're going to be in big-ass trouble, okay? Go smile at me, man. Okay? That's how people like you. You're shot. <laughs> I got a bet. I bet by the time you're 21, somebody's going to poke the back of your head. <laughs> Okay. Now, first off, this asshole sounds like Mr. Mackey off of South Park, okay? I'm dead serious, dude, okay? Don't laugh at me, dude, okay? You know, so anyhow, basically says that he's got a bet that by the time he's 21, someone's going to put a bullet in his head and, quote, it might be me the one that does it. He needs to take some fucking English classes as opposed to threatening high school kids. But look, if you, I'd say the same thing about teachers that I say about police. If you don't have the emotional stability 
to deal with kids. You've got no business being in a classroom. And when we talk about systemic racism, institutionalized racism, this is the type of stuff that we're talking about. You got a white teacher threatening a black student in class with all of his peers. How seriously do you think that teacher is going to take that young man's education going forward? So that's out of Georgia. In Illinois, ProPublica and the Chicago Tribune have worked together as part of a collaborative study. And what they found is that police routinely dodge discipline that they've been promised to hand out to unruly officers. I'm going to read you an extended quote from the story. I mean, it's, it's a wild story, but here's a quote of it. Brandon Whitehead dropped to his knees in the middle of the busy street, cars veering around him as an off-duty Chicago police officer aimed a handgun at him and his father. It was nearly midnight, and Walter Whitehead had been driving his 16-year-old home from his job as a cashier at Long John Silver's. Brandon stayed quiet as the officer, who also had just left work, called 911 for assistance. Then the officer, William Levine, called again. On the third call, Levine became indignant, requesting help from a brother in blue as he blocked traffic. I've got two offenders here in custody. They tried to kill me here. Levine later told investigators that the Whiteheads had cut him off in traffic that night in October 2006 as they were driving down Southwestern Avenue on the city's south side. He overtook them in his Monte Carlo while pointing a gun at them, then ordered them out of their car at a stoplight, forced them to their knees, and handcuffed Walter Whitehead. Brandon Whitehead had called 911 too. He was terrified as Levine, not in uniform, approached the car with his gun drawn, swearing and calling them jack-off and motherfucker. He and his father initially thought they were being carjacked. Can you hear him? Brandon asked the operator. She could. Get off the fucking phone, Levine screamed. More than 11 years ago, the Whiteheads filed a complaint with police officials responsible for investigating officer misconduct. But the father and son were skeptical Levine would be punished. They were right. Police officials concluded that Levine had mistreated the Whiteheads, used profanity, lied about it, and they recommended that he be suspended for 60 days. But they didn't follow through and the officer didn't serve a reduced suspension until just this month after reporters repeatedly questioned the delay. An officer served a reduced suspension 11 years after his misconduct. Originally, he wasn't going to serve anything, but the media happened to get a hold of it. That's out of Chicago. In Elgin, or Elgin, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, uh, a lawsuit's been filed against 53-year-old Christy Lenhart, who works at one of the psychiatric hospitals there. Uh, she basically groomed a 24-year-old patient as a uh, sex slave, in essence. From the story, it says, quote, Hurt, who's the young man, by the way, was diagnosed with schizophrenia and pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity in 2014 for battery against a police officer. The incident landed him at the facility where his mom claims that Lenhart would make excuses to extend his stay. They assured me that they were going to help me with my child, Hurt's mom told WBBM. What they did to my son was wrong. So apparently there was an investigation. They found out that this lady was having sex with the guy and everything else. Uh, and then the, the creepy part to me is that they would extend his stay. That's disturbing. So like rather than be treated and released, they're keeping you locked up in an insane asylum because one of the nurses wants to have sex with you. That's fucked up. Uh, out of Indiana, in LaPorte County, the chief deputy prosecutor has been suspended from practicing law for four years because he was eavesdropping on defense attorneys and their clients. 
Uh, from the story, says, quote, the Indiana Supreme Court, which oversees attorney discipline in the state, on Monday voted 5-0 to zero to prohibit Robert Neary from working as a lawyer for a four-year period. The state's high court concluded that Neary, while LaPorte County's chief deputy prosecutor, used methods of obtaining evidence that violated the legal rights of a third person and engaged in conduct prejudicial to the administration of justice. According to the ruling, Neary and several detectives used remote audio and video feeds to listen in on a confidential conversation between a homicide suspect and his attorney in an interview room at the Michigan City Police Department. So that is in Indiana. Out of Louisiana, uh, we got some puppy side down in Evangeline Parish. Uh, Kelly Sullivan called the police because a neighbor was harassing her. And as the officer was finishing up talking to the neighbor, her 12-pound terrier got out of the house. Both she and her daughter went running after the dog. The officer pulled out his gun and blew it away within feet of the little girl. I will spare you the gruesome details, but there's descriptions of what happened because they were so close. But then that's bad enough. Uh, turns out that after he's killed the family pet with the little girl nearby watching in disbelief, he then complained that he wasted a bullet. Uh, he said that, this is a quote from the story, the deputy told Kelly that if she had bitten him, she being the dog in that case, uh, if the dog had bitten him, he'd have to sue and that shooting her was the better option. He then told her, it was a shame I had to waste that bullet. It was a really expensive hollow point bullet. Look, I, I buy hollow points. They're not that expensive. You're just being an asshole at that point. Uh, Laurel Matthews, who is a program specialist with the U.S. Department of Justice's Community-Oriented Policing Services Office. That's one of the programs that Jeff Sessions is trying to wind down, by the way. We covered that a few podcasts back. Uh, says, fatal encounters when it comes to pets are an epidemic and that police kill between 25 to 30 pet dogs every single day. Uh, so that is in Louisiana. Also in Louisiana, three state troopers have been suspended as part of a ticket writing scandal. Uh, so they have this program called Local Agency Compensated Enforcement, where basically each individual parish hires state troopers to write traffic tickets for them. They get some of the money. The state troopers get some of the money. Uh, well, one of the troopers, a guy named Daryl Thomas, made $240,000 last year by participating in this program, more than any other law enforcement officer in the state. And then, so you've got this money-making scheme for the government. Well, it turns out that's not even good enough. Found out that an undercover investigation from uh, Fox 8, who's the affiliate down there, uh, basically that he was getting paid for work he didn't do. He was submitting fake timesheets and everything else. So that is in Louisiana, home of flagrant corruption. Like they, they Louisiana does corruption right. You know what I mean? If you're going to be corrupt, Louisiana is the corruption gold standard when it comes to our court system. Uh, up in Maine, in Lincoln County, uh, Sheriff's Deputy Kenneth Hatch, who was once the Deputy of the Year, uh, will be starting trial today, Monday, the day this podcast comes out, on 11 counts of sexual abuse of a minor, 3 counts of unlawful sexual contact, and 8 counts of aggravated furnishing of marijuana. Basically, this guy took weed from the evidence bags at the police station and gave it to the people, the girls, the teenagers that he was trying to assault. 
Uh, and in the case of one of the victims, the first assault happened when she was six back in 2004. And then he assaulted the same girl again in 2013 and 14 when she was a teenager. Like, ugh, God, these people are so fucking disturbing. Maybe he should run for the United States Senate. He'll get better results. We'll see. Uh, down in Maryland, in Baltimore, this is some good news. Let it never be said that I don't report good news. So body cam footage has been released showing Baltimore police officer Angel Villaronga uh, reasoning with a black guy who's suicidal. So the guy's got a knife. He's had a domestic disturbance with his girlfriend. He's begging the police to shoot him. He doesn't want to live anymore. So pause here. How disturbing is it that we all know police will summarily execute black people without cause that when you want to commit suicide, that's the way you want to go out? You can just go out with a knife and say, hey, shoot me, officer, and you have a reason to suspect that's going to work. Uh, well, And we'll cover that later on. Actually did work in another case, but we'll get there. Uh, well, anyhow, this, this Villaranga guy actually goes out of his way at length to try and talk the guy down. Tells him he's not going to shoot him, just wants to talk. Instructs the other officers to back up, lower their weapons, stay away, let him handle it. And it works. He ends up bonding with this guy, convinces the guy to turn over the knife, and the guy gets taken to a psychiatric facility for suicide watch as opposed to being shot dead in the street. Uh, tremendous police work on his part. If you happen to be in Baltimore and know an Angel Villaranga, uh, give him a thumbs up from us. Uh, over in Massachusetts, in Worcester, or Worcester, or Worcestershire, however the hell you pronounce it, uh, State Trooper Ryan Sevior arrived at the scene of an auto accident where a driver was reeking of alcohol, had a heroin kit in the car, and turns out she is the daughter of a judge up there. She said that her dad would kill her if she found out that she was on drugs. She offered to have sex with the officer if he gave her more lenient treatment, and the officer put all of those comments in his report, which is something that you're supposed to do anyway. Uh, well, his superiors ordered him to take the comments out, and then disciplined him, reprimanded him uh, for putting them in there. So just know that in Massachusetts, if you happen to be a child of an important person, be it judge or politician, the police department brass will help ensure that you can commit crimes with impunity. Uh, down in Mississippi, in Pearl, uh, youth court judge John Shirley ordered that a mother could no longer have contact with her four-month-old baby for a total of 14 months, unless she paid court costs related to an unrelated misdemeanor. Uh, basically, the woman who's a resident of Jackson, Mississippi, was traveling through Pearl looking for a job. She was a passenger in a friend's car. The child was riding in the car seat in the back, and the car was stopped for a minor traffic violation. Well, it turned out that both of the adult women had outstanding warrants for other minor offenses themselves where they had missed court or hadn't paid a fine. It's not clear which. Well, they both got arrested, and then the arresting officer contacted the Department of uh, Human Services to say that the kid was abandoned because the women had been detained. So the, uh, the kid's grandmother shows up within minutes at the scene of the arrest before the uh, people who were arrested were transported, but that didn't matter. They refused to turn the child over to the grandmother. Well, Judge Shirley ended up hearing a, uh, a, basically a custody award, essentially, to the grandmother, but ordered that the mom couldn't see the kid until she had paid the court costs relating to those traffic offenses they were arrested for. And that's, so the, the, that's fucked up enough with respect to the mom. But think about what's happening with the kid here. You have a four-month-old child, prime bonding time between kid and mother, and she's being blocked from seeing her kid. Couldn't see her kid for 14 months. 
before finally another judge entered an order to vacate Judge Surley's decision. Well, he has now resigned from the youth court position. He's still a judge elsewhere in the county, uh, and the youth court is being closed. So that is in Mississippi. In Montana, out of Billings, there's a profile on public defender Richard Gillespie, who has been filing motions to have his clients uh, uncuffed before they're having court proceedings. So there was a Ninth Circuit ruling a few months back that essentially said that if you were a detainee at a jail, you haven't been convicted of anything yet, that being in shackles as a blanket thing, you're always in shackles no matter what, while you're in court, violates your constitutional rights. If there's no reason for it, you know, it, it's different if you're a threat. You know, if you need to be shackled as a public safety measure, that's one thing. But to shackle everyone else, it infringes on your constitutional rights because essentially when you're in court as an inmate, an inmate garb with inmate handcuffs, you know, people treat you differently. They treat you like a dog, essentially. And not only do they treat you differently as a person, studies showed that judges were more likely to give you worse results, whether that's a conviction in a bench trial or a longer sentence or a, uh, you know, higher bond, whatever else. If you were in inmate attire and handcuffed, as opposed to being shackle-free, wearing, you know, a polo shirt or whatever else. So as part of this court ruling, this particular public defender has been filing these motions to have his clients unshackled before they appear before the court. Most folks don't think that's a bad idea. It complies with the court ruling, helps get justice, etc., etc. Well, I, the reason why I'm giving you the story is the quote from the sheriff, Yellowstone County Sheriff Mike Linder, uh, because he's complained about this practice. He says, quote, in an already bound up court system, that simply doesn't help. And then when people brought up the point that in federal court, you don't have your shackles on because you deal with one inmate at a time, uh, he said, quote, county courthouses are places to do business and federal courthouses are places to do justice, period. County courthouses are places to do business. That, that's really all the county courthouses are. It's a revenue-making system for the government, and that applies even in Montana. Uh, out of Nevada, in Carson City, Fred Steese has been pardoned after spending 21 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. Uh, Steese was arrested in 1992 for the murder of Gerard Souls, a Las Vegas performer with a costumed poodle act at the Circus Circus Casino. At the time of Soul's death, this is from the story, uh, Steese was several states away, but prosecutors didn't reveal that they had evidence that Steese was telling the truth, that he didn't commit the crime, instead telling jurors that Steese had fabricated his alibi with the help of a brother that he happened to look alike. During the trial, the prosecutors also concealed the nature of several photo lineups pointing to Steese's innocence and accused the defense of manufacturing evidence. Steese was convicted in 1995 and sentenced to two life sentences. Uh, you'll be surprised by this. The men who prosecuted him, Bill Kephart and Doug Herndon, are now district court judges in Las Vegas. In 2012, a Nevada 8th Judicial District Court judge issued a order of actual innocence, the first of its kind in that court, essentially declaring that Steese didn't kill anyone. But the Clark County District Attorney's Office refused to concede it had convicted the wrong man. Instead, prosecutors vowed to fight Steese's exoneration and to retry him. At the hearing for his pardon request, uh, the sister of the guy that was killed actually showed up. Says, quote, Nasri, who's the sister's last name, said she'd long believed Steese was guilty and had felt misled by the prosecution when she realized he wasn't. Now, she said, she grappled with the knowledge that the murderer was free 
and will never be held responsible for this crime. This is the real problem with wrongful convictions. It's bad enough that someone loses years of their life for something they didn't do, but then the people that actually did it, the people who are actually responsible, get to walk away scot-free. They never get caught. That's what happens when your government fucks up. Out of New York, we got a couple stories. The Vera Institute of Justice has done a study on New York's Immigrant Family Unity Project, which is basically a nonprofit that helps provide attorneys to immigrants who are in ICE custody because uh, you don't have a constitutional right to an attorney when you're dealing with deportation proceedings. They found that favorable outcomes happened in 48% of cases where they had an attorney up from just 4%. So that's an 1,100% increase. That's astonishing. Um, so that is a very interesting study. We'll give you the link to that. Check it out. Also, judges have issued an order across the entire state reminding DAs to turn over exculpatory material at least 30 days before any felony trial. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, while many state and federal judges have issued such orders on their own, it is the first time that an entire state has sent such a directive to all its judges. Judges were informed of the rule in a memo from Chief Administrative Judge Lawrence Marks distributed on Monday. So we'll see how that turns out. The hope is if you're disclosing exculpatory information ahead of time, defense attorneys can actually do something with it and decide that whether or not the person who is being charged actually committed the crime. Also out of New York City, killer cop Wayne Isaacs of the NYPD has been acquitted in the road rage killing of Delron Small. Uh, basically, Isaacs cut off Small. Small got out of his car at a stoplight to go talk to him, and Isaacs blew him away before Small ever got to the car. Uh, initially, Isaac said that Small had reached into the car and started beating the shit out of Isaacs. Well, that turned out to be a lie. But if you haven't learned by now, when you're a person of color in America, you got to be perfect to you know avoid having your life taken. And even then, sometimes they'll kill you anyway. Uh, so NYPD police can lie and get away with it in a nutshell. Uh, here in North Carolina, we got some stories going on. So police at UNC Chapel Hill actually went undercover to spy on students. Uh, based on rumors that someone was going to try and topple Silent Sam, which is a Confederate monument that the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill has on campus. Uh, Officer Hector Borges posed as an auto mechanic. His actual uh, said his name was Victor Hernandez. Well, it turns out he got caught by one of the other people who was his co-protester, if you will. Uh, they ended up with a conversation that went viral because that got recorded. Uh, so that is in Chapel Hill. In Fayetteville, state prison supervisor Bernard Robinson of the Lumberton Correctional Institution has been fired after decades of harassment. Uh, some of the tidbits from the court ruling affirming that he's going to lose his job uh, made to female workers included, quote, you're not doing those pants no good. You would look good in Victoria's Secrets. Let me taste you. 23 years old. Mm, so young and fertile. You don't know what I could do to you. And saying the letters RBX on his badge stood for Rape Booty X-Rated. So that's out of Fayetteville. And here in Durham, I don't want to say I told you so, but I kind of told you so. Y'all might remember back in episode 21, the title was Hashtag Defend Durham. We talked about the Confederate monument that was across the street from my office and how a bunch of people took that monument down. And then the sheriff insisted that everyone who was present be charged with felon felonious rioting, basically overcharged everybody. Well, the first set of charges against three of those people had been dropped. So I told you that was going to 
happen because there's no way that they can prove the elements required for rioting. And that's just the start of more to come. So that is here in Durham. In Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, so Larry Krasner got elected on Tuesday as their new DA. This guy is the defense attorney. Uh, he's sued the police repeatedly. He's never had any experience as a prosecutor. He made that the crux of his campaign. He got elected, which is a huge deal. I mean, I hope he can live up to the hype. I'm looking forward to it. Well, the police have started a hashtag not my DA campaign to whine about it. Philly officer Mark Marchetti uh, changed his profile photo to Krasner's on Wednesday and began a conversation in which friends used the hashtag NotMyDA to describe Krasner in profane terms. Marchetti wrote, He doesn't give me my arrest powers, so I don't care. No blood on my hands when he lets the shit bags out. Another officer, Bob Condart, responded with an image of the logo of the district attorney's flipped upside down. The district attorney's office flipped upside down, a move that is considered a symbol of distress. Officer John Graziano called Krasner a creepo scumbag. Officer Steve Mancuso wrote, He's got that look on his face you just want to wipe off with a bitch slap. Uh, side note, Mancuso actually had been accused of rough handling an Eagles fan during a game, and that case got settled out of court with taxpayers ponying out some cash. Uh, and then Marchetti's partner, Kevin Klein, posted a video of Marchetti prank calling the law office of Krasno, Krasno, and Awindinjo. So not Krasner, Krasno. Uh, to congratulate Krasner on the win. The video shows a close-up of Marchetti calling the office, which is not connected to the DA-elect, because guess what? They got last different last names, uh, and asking a confused receptionist if Krasner was available. The video looked as if it was made inside a police facility, and it was removed or made private after the media contacted Klein requesting comment. So that is in Philly. In Homewood, two constables have been charged after they fired shots at a driver, chased him for a mile, and opened fire again after a fender bender. Constables John W. Miller III and Ronald J. Cintion, sorry for these last names, all these interesting spellings, uh, were charged Wednesday with recklessly endangering another person, official oppression and conspiracy, in connection to the situation. Essentially, this guy was paying attention to his uh, in-car computer thing, basically little iPad dash panels you got now, uh, ended up hitting these guys in the rear as they were stopped at an intersection. Both of them got out with guns drawn, and he couldn't tell that they were police or constables, whatever they call them in Pennsylvania. Uh, so he fled, and both guys opened fire, and they said that they opened fire because they believed Jones was trying to run them over except the shots hit Jones's rear bumper and hit his rear hubcap. So laws of physics, we talked about this about the case down in Texas with Jordan Edwards. If you're hitting someone in the bumper in the rear hubcap, they're not trying to run you over because they're already in front of you. So we'll see how that turns out. So that's in Pennsylvania. Uh, down in South Carolina, Hundreds of arrest warrants for people who have missed court or couldn't pay court fines are being recalled. 
under a new directive from the state's chief justice. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Supreme Court Chief Justice Donald Beatty has taken steps recently to address concerns, particularly when impoverished people are convicted and incarcerated without ever being told of their right to have an attorney defend them. Scores of arrest warrants statewide are being recalled as a result, even though Beatty has yet to issue a formal written order on the practice. Many summary courts, which include county magistrates and municipal judges from the low country to the upstate, have suspended all arrests on bench warrants as they scramble to figure out which cases are affected. So essentially, that's going to be putting an end to South Carolina's practice of running debtors' prisons. Uh, in Columbia, State Senator Paul Campbell rear-ended a car driving home from a marina. Uh, well, he was drunk, so him and his wife actually switched seats so that he wouldn't be charged with the DUI. Uh, did get charged anyway, got charged with both DUI and lying to an officer. And the video of his arrest has been released, so that's entertaining. Uh, over in Tennessee, in Memphis... I'm not sure what to think about this story. This is just kind of weird to me. So they have GPS monitoring devices that they use for victims of domestic violence. Essentially, if an offender comes within their vicinity, they get a notification using their own GPS monitor. And I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I guess I get it. You know, it, it, it just, something just doesn't seem right to me that you have victims being tracked by the government. It just, yeah, I don't know. So we'll give you that story you can judge for yourself. Uh, over in Utah, in Weber County, the appellate defender for that county has been fired because he pointed out that he wasn't getting paid. So defense attorney Samuel Newton had been representing a guy, uh, a Douglas Lavelle, and Newton had a contract with Weber County to represent not just Lavelle, but all of the other inmates on death row and anyone else who's indigent doing a criminal appeal. Well, he withdrew from Lavelle's case in September because he pointed out that the county wasn't paying him in a timely fashion. And because of that, it was causing stress-related medical issues and created a conflict of interest between him and his client. Because he's got to decide between representing the client that he's got a contract to represent and figuring out how to put money in the bank to actually you know, pay the bills and whatever else. Well, the government didn't like that, didn't like him pointing out that they weren't paying him in a timely fashion. So they ended his, his uh, contract entirely, decided he can't handle any appeals at all whatsoever. Uh, County Commissioner James Harvey sent him a letter saying, quote, While we have appreciated your hard work and dedication, this past year you have made various representations to the media and to the court that have been untruthful and harmful to the county's reputation. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Harvey echoed those sentiments in a Friday interview, but declined to elaborate on specific untruthful statements he believes Newton has made. So essentially, the guy hadn't lied. He said the exact truth, but it makes the government look bad, so the government's going to take action on it. Uh, over in Wisconsin, so I'd mentioned earlier, we had kind of an opposite of the Baltimore, Maryland story. So in Odana or Odana, uh, 14-year-old Jason Perro, who is a member of the Chippewa tribe up there, uh, supposedly called 911 to report himself. Uh, he was clearly despondent. He had a knife in his hand, according to police. So Ashland County Sheriff's Deputy Brock, I, I don't even know how to pronounce this guy's last name, Murdenovich. So it's M-R-D-J-E-N-O-V-I-C-H. So there's like no vowel for the first four consonants. Um, Brock essentially showed up and killed the kid, shot him dead. Uh, once in the heart, once in the shoulder, and he died. So rather than take a lesson from 
the officer in Baltimore, uh, Officer Brock Murdenovich, just decided that, hey, you know, we killed a bunch of Indians, putting them on the reservation. What's another 14-year-old? Who cares? So that's in Wisconsin. Uh, so that's it for the uh, United States. Every now and then we also cover stuff in foreign countries. Up in Canada, in Toronto, charges against four dirty cops who not only were caught planning evidence, but were then indicted on over two dozen counts of perjury and obstruction of justice. Uh, they're all going to walk free because the government, what they call the crown in uh, former British colonies, uh, they basically fucked up the discovery process. So prosecutors didn't turn over information properly, and in exchange, four dirty cops will have all charges against them dropped, which means, guess what? They're going to be back on the force. So that is the state-by-state state and Canada uh, justice news this week. Again, all of this has just happened since last Monday. It blows my mind how much shit can happen in just seven days. It's insane to me. Uh, but let's go ahead and get into our Law 140 section, suggested by David Ross of Tennessee, one of our Law 140 lovers, as a high-level overview of contract law. So folks, thanks for coming back from the break. This is our Law 140 segment of the podcast, and this one this week is brought to us by David Ross of Tennessee, one of my friends. He's also one of our Law 140 lovers. So if you two would like to pick a topic one day, you can become a Law 140 lover as well. Just go to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash fisk. Uh, so David asked that we cover verbal contracts in his case. He wanted to know what a verbal contract was as far as, you know, what's different between that and a regular contract. Uh, so I decided that it would make more sense to kind of go over contracts in general because contracts have existed for centuries, even before you really had the courts to, to look into the contracts. Um, so we're going to go over that. And there's no case law this week. This is kind of the, if you go back to one of our very first episodes where I did an overview of the court system, it's going to be that same type of thing. Now, even though contracts go back centuries, the, they really get interesting starting around the late 1800s, early 1900s. And the reason why is you had two professors, one at Harvard University and one at Yale University, that ended up putting together these treatises on contracts that are still taught to this day. So you have Samuel Williston, who is from Harvard. Uh, he is kind of a champion of, I don't know the exact term, I feel like they called it legal formalism, if I remember correctly, from law school. But essentially, he took the view that when you have a contract, you're not supposed to consider anything outside of the four corners of the document. You look what's on the paper, and that's it. Uh, his treatise is called Williston on Contracts. It's actually currently maintained by a professor at Campbell University School of Law in Raleigh, just up the street from us. Uh, and then kind of as a counterweight to him is Yale professor Arthur Linton Corbin, who was a champion of what was called legal realism. So in his view, you don't just look at the contract, you also look at how the parties have historically dealt with one another to kind of take real life into consideration when you're making decisions on how a contract should be enforced. So his treatise, unsurprisingly, is Corbin on contracts. So Williston on contracts, Corbin on contracts, these are like basic... Uh, I don't know, like it's the core meat and potatoes thought behind how contracts are supposed to work. So things like the Uniform Commercial Code, um, 
those types of things were very heavily influenced by Corbin. A lot of old court decisions are influenced by Williston, and so on and so forth. You get the idea. So what is a contract? Essentially, a contract has four elements to it. So go back to our earlier discussion, the distinction between elements and factors. Elements are required. If an element is missing, a thing doesn't exist. Factors are optional. So factors are considered by a court, but if they don't exist, it's no big deal. So there are four elements to a contract. There's an offer, there's an acceptance, there's what is called consideration, and there's something called mutual assent. So what do those things mean? An offer is, quote, an expression of willingness to contract on certain terms made with the intention that it shall become binding as soon as it is accepted by the person to whom it is addressed. So if I say, I will pay you $5 to edit my sound stuff, my offer is to pay the $5 in exchange for Mike editing the sound stuff. That's the offer. And acceptance is when Mike agrees to that. So what we talk about a lot is this concept of meeting of the minds. Both parties think that they are agreeing to the same thing, the same terms and conditions of the agreement. That becomes the acceptance. So then what is consideration? And consideration essentially is a benefit to each party. It's part of what you're bargaining for. So in my case, I'm bargaining to get sound editing Mike's bargaining for five bucks. We pay him a little bit more than that, but that's the gist of it. It's what you call bargained for exchange. So it's got some kind of value to the parties and it's exchanged between them. You know, oftentimes you'll have what is called a, exchanging a promise for a promise. I promise to give you the five dollars. You promise to edit my sound stuff. Uh, so that is considered adequate consideration. You'll often see in uh, contracts, where you're buying something, you'll see so-and-so paid a dollar for whatever. You know, you never actually pay the dollar, but that is considered a recital of the consideration for the contract. Uh, and then mutual assent is some kind of manifestation, some kind of outward showing that the parties agreed to follow the contract, essentially. So the most obvious one is in the case of a signed contract, a written contract, you affix your signature. That is your mutual assent. Both parties have signed the agreement. Uh, but you can also have it in what are called unilateral contracts. So for example, if I say I will pay $100 if someone finds my missing poodle and someone goes out, they've heard about this reward because of that, they go out, they find the poodle and they bring it to me. That is a unilateral contract. I posted this announcement of what I'm offering. Someone accepted by finding the poodle. The consideration was the actual performance, the exchanging of the promise to give money in exchange for the actually getting of the poodle. And the mutual assent is that it's been done. So the person brought me the poodle. I'm now on the hook to pay them $100. So that's the gist of it. It's just got to be some kind of outward manifestation that the parties agree. So like I said, the vast majority of the time, that's going to be a signature of some kind. Uh, but sometimes it's a text message saying, hey, I'm down, let's do this. Uh, it could be an email. There's all kinds of other ways to do mutual assent. Now, going through those four factors, there's no reference to it having to be in writing because normally oral contracts and written contracts are on equal footing. If I say, Mike, I'll give you $5 to edit my sound stuff. Mike says, cool, I'll edit your sound stuff in exchange for $5. That's a binding oral agreement between us. 
even though it's not reduced to writing. And that's kind of the, the gist of it. When, I, when David asked me about oral contracts, why well, I said we're going to do contracts in general, that's the reason why. It's because normally oral and written contracts are on the same plane. They're on the same level. Now, there are a few exceptions. So states can put in a bunch of other exceptions on their own, but the most common list is what's called the statute of frauds. So you'll hear about this a lot. We actually got it from the British. So there is an act of parliament back in 1677. So more than 300 years ago. When I say contracts have been around for centuries, I wasn't kidding. Um, But there's this act of parliament called an act for prevention of frauds and perjuries that essentially provided certain types of contracts had to be in writing. If they weren't in writing, they weren't enforceable. Uh, We have a lot of that here in America. Every state has some version of a statute of frauds. And the types of contracts that apply follow these categories. So you have contracts related to marriage, so your prenuptial agreements. Those have to be in writing to be enforceable. Uh, What are called term of years agreements. So if you want to do something over a five-year time span, anything that's longer than a year has to be in writing to be enforceable. Now, I will note, North Carolina does not have that provision. So we have all these other, there are six basic provisions to a statute of frauds. North Carolina deliberately does not have the term of years provision. So you can have a multi-year agreement that's an oral agreement as opposed to a written one. It's not a good idea, but you can do it. Uh, Contracts relating to the sale of land are also subject to the statute of frauds. Those have to be in writing to be enforceable. Uh, Contracts where the executor of an estate is agreeing to pay an estate debt out of his own money. Contracts for the sale of goods that are worth more than $500. And contracts where someone is agreeing to be a surety or guarantor of another. Those six things, marriage, term of years, land, executorship, sale of goods, and a surety, all have to be in writing to be enforceable. Now, if they're not in writing, they could still be carried out. I mean, you can have an agreement where I'm going to sell you my parcel of land uh, in exchange you pay me $5,000. The catch is that if something goes wrong, if I break the contract and I want to go sue you, I want to take you into court to force you to comply with the contract, what's called specific performance. I ask the court for specific performance. If the contract is not in writing, I will lose that case because the other side is going to say, hey, there's a statute of frauds. This contract wasn't in writing. I don't have any obligation to follow through on my part of the deal. So that is the gist of contract basics. Now, there's a whole bunch of other contract stuff we can, you know, in law school, you spend an entire year studying contracts three days a week for an entire academic year. Uh, We can go into a lot of detail on a lot of it. We might very well do that in other podcasts. But the gist of it is that to have a contract, you have to have offer, acceptance, consideration, and mutual assent. Normally, both written and oral contracts are on an equal playing field, unless it is one of those six categories that fall under the statute of frauds. And if you're into remembering things with acronyms or mnemonics or whatever, think of my legs is how it comes out. So marriage, term of years, land, executorship, sale of goods, and a suretyship. That's how we remember it in law school. We call it my legs. Um, don't think about my physical actual legs, but that's the acronym. Uh, so that is going to be the basics for contract law. And if you get really bored, you have trouble sleeping at night, and you need something to cure your insomnia, Uh, Pick up either Williston on contracts or Corbin on contracts and read through it.
So folks, that's going to cover our Law 140 this week, an overview of contract law. I hope you enjoyed it. If you liked this podcast, please do us a favor, rate us on the iTunes Store, Apple Podcasts, leave us a written review, tell your friends, hit us up on Twitter. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all of you have a blessed week and I will talk to you next Monday.